0: I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick and welcome to the Dying to Ask podcast, it's episode 185. I have been loving our health and wellness series that we've used to kick off season nine and the new year and this has been a series where we've taken a look at ways to make those new year's goals of self-improvement a little bit more possible actually give them a shot at actually happening so we have looked at all kinds of things over the last two months but today's guest is not going to look at what you eat doesn't care when you work out doesn't care how often you work out today's guest is looking at the words that come out of your mouth and how they impact your mindset specifically one word the word is should as in i should i don't even have to finish that sentence and you probably already start getting a feeling when you say i should shoulding is a creativity killer and it's an anxiety booster. My guest actually calls the word should the most stressful word in the English language. Dr. Ron Alexander is a psychotherapist. He has two PhDs, one in human behavior, another one in psychology. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's an adjunct professor at UCLA Extension. He's taught at Pepperdine, and he runs something called the Open Mind Training Program. It is personal development that relies on mindfulness-based therapy and meditation. Now, these days, everyone is preaching meditation and mindfulness, but Dr. Alexander was one of the first to make that connection to creativity back in the late 70s. He was living in the LA area, and a lot of his clients were coming in were in the entertainment world or trying to become. So he was working a lot with musicians and movie executives. And his open mind training techniques had an unexpected benefit for a lot of those people. And what happened was it made them a lot more creative. So things that they had maybe been turning to to be creative, i.e. drugs and alcohol, um, not so good for you. (laughs) So he taught them these other things that all of a sudden started opening up their minds, obviously in a less intrusive way. So years later, Dr. Ron is basically a go-to for not only Hollywood types, but now big tech companies like Apple and Sun Microsystems have turned to him. He's the author of several books. His latest is called Core Creativity, The Mindful Way to Unlock Your Creative Self. Get ready for some incredibly interesting stories. He starts dropping names and you're like, oh my gosh, seriously? Oh yeah, he really did. On this Dying to Ask, the impact saying I should has on your mindset. If should is the most stressful word in the English language, what do you think the second most stressful is? You uh, Use it all day long. At least I do. How can you stop saying should and get yourself out of that stress loop? And what can you expect to happen in your brain and to your stress levels if you ditch shoulding? Dr. Ron Alexander is my guest this week on the Dying to Ask podcast. Have you ever wondered how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through and they pull it off. And maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask. Dr. Alexander, welcome to the Dying to Ask podcast.
1: Oh, thank you. Happy to be I, here.
0: Oh, great. Well, I think you have one of the most interesting bios I've ever read. <laughs> You're a creativity consultant. When you tell somebody that at a, at a party, what do they, how do they usually respond?
1: Uh, they immediately want to know if I can help them get a job.
0: Well, you do work in Hollywood, so that's probably right.
1: Right. Most of so the time.
0: What does that mean? What, do you explain to people what it is that you've been doing over the last 46 years.
1: Well, I started um, in 1978 um, at the Center for Health and Healing associated with the Cedars-Sinai Medical Office Towers. And in my very first month of private practice, I was teaching mindfulness meditation and yoga. And... The wives would come in for the weekly classes, and then they would start to send their husbands who were working in film, TV, music. Um, They would be in bands, and um, they would be all stressed out. Some would be bipolar, manic depressive. And so they would send them in to me uh, to start working with to help enhance their sense of uh, self and well-being and bring more creativity and relaxation to them.
0: I mean, that all seems very kind of normal now and very mainstream, but back then it wasn't at all, was it?
1: Oh, no, we were considered uh, heretics and um, uh, the early pioneers, we literally uh, were involved in the very first wave of all this kind of meditational and mindfulness thinking and um, um, how to uh, create holistic health and bring that to um, medicine.
0: And so as you started watching all of these creative minds doing the yoga, doing the meditation, doing the mindfulness, what were the things you started seeing happen when it came to creativity?
1: Well, the most important thing was that once I started to teach them how to do mindfulness meditation and then get out of their their heads and off of their drugs, that their creativity doubled, tripled, quadrupled. And their sense of self and well-being became more enhanced. And the more that they practiced mindfulness meditation with me, and in those days I was doing yoga therapy in addition to psychotherapy, um, they stopped taking uh, drugs when they were on the road or they're playing in bands or they were shooting a movie or doing a TV series. And they would go into their trailer, they'd give me a call, I'd spend 20, 30 minutes taking them through um, a guided meditation. They'd get off, they'd stand on the line, do their their lines, and then come back, call me in and say, wow, that was fantastic.
0: Wow. So what were you then learning about creativity and how it's unlocked during this time?
1: I was learning something fascinating, which is our um, depressive states and anxious states don't necessarily derail us from becoming more creative. And very early on, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet many, many uh, individuals. And I met socially, and through actually the Meditation Society, the late, great Leonard Cohen, poet, singer, songwriter, and had many conversations with him. And I once asked him, I said, people uh, always say that the brilliance of your creativity comes out of your depression. Is that so? And he went into deep reflection, because Leonard was a man of not many words. And he said, no, um, depression was a, a sea or an ocean that I swam in. But when I came out of the ocean and onto the beach, is, that's when the creativity unfolded. And I said, so what helps you to get out of the uh, sea of depression or anxiety? And he said, mindfulness and Zen meditation. And spending time with exploring the richness of one's inner life. And Leonard spent a lot of time exploring his dreams, meditating, he went off to a Zen monastery up in Mount Baldy for six years at the peak of his uh, fame and creativity. And then he came back and then a couple of years later, he went on the road, I think he was 74, 76. And he stayed on the road for six solid years and had the largest grossing tour of his entire life. And I think it was the fourth or fifth largest grossing tour of that year.
0: That's so fascinating. I feel like after the last couple of years, after you know the pandemic and lockdown and so many people feeling that A lot of their choices in life had kind of been put on hold that there are a lot of people who have this need to create right now, who feel like they want to create, but they feel really locked because of the stress, the depression that maybe they've been experiencing over the last few years. So it strikes me that a lot of what you're talking about could be applied to the average person, not just these creative geniuses.
1: Yes. And... I spent the time in COVID and in lockdown, and really pretty much on a solitary retreat for three years, not socializing much. And I created my new book called Creativity. And so when people would call me because I was doing um, coaching sessions and psychotherapy sessions, and they would say to me, "I feel so depressed and I'm so anxious," I would say, "Oh, and I feel so isolated." I'd say, "Fantastic. Think of." the concept of prison, monastery, ashram, cave, use this time to quiet your mind down, harness the stillness of this time and dig down deep into the self. And I'm sure there'll be something very rich in enli- enlivening that will come out of uh, this quiet time that you can use as a boom, which is a gift. Rather than to look at it as just a dark period of isolation. Yeah. most of the people that I was coaching, they got into new projects and revamped their companies or their uh, teams or their organizations, or some people started to write books like me. Right. Uh, other musicians that I worked with went into the recording studio uh, at their homes and then uh, at Sony and Sunset uh, Records and other places, and came out with a brand new CD.
0: Yeah, and that's a lot of the, the the entertainment that we're starting to see now. A lot of the, the music that's coming out, a lot of the books that are being published now. You're finding out how did a lot of these artists spend those years and how yes. did they figure out a way to tap into their creativity and not feel stuck during that time?
1: Yeah, take, for example, um, the great uh, music producer, Rick Rubin, uh, who's worked with uh, everyone from the Dixie Chicks to um, um, Nirvana, Um, He went off to uh, Kauai and then he came out with a new book on creativity. And uh, he worked with lots of groups, listened to lots and lots of demos and tapes and uh, used the time in a very fertile way. And see, that's really important is when we have quiet times, one should always think of the four seasons of life that in the fall, things start to quiet down. Then there's the winter, you know, and winter can be also depression. Winter can be in terms of creativity, a lack of a feeling of fertility. But then what always follows winter is spring. And spring is, you know, uh, where we begin to nurture and watch what we've uh, planted in fall or in winter sprout up. And then after spring always comes summer. And so there's always these cycles Um, that we need to follow, both externally and then the cycles internally from a creativity perspective.
0: One of the techniques that that you recommend is eliminating two words from your your dialogue, inner dialogue and outer dialogue. And the words are, I should. Yes. Talk to me about this. This is so obvious, but so hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And in addition to I should, I also say eliminate I have to, or I must. And as children, of course, our parents tell us you should get up at a certain time, you should shower before you go to school, you should brush your teeth, you should shine your shoes. For me, I was um, in a private Catholic school in Boston, you should put on the uniform. And we just take those early formulas and we unfortunately apply them too much to doing what we feel we should do instead of what I call um, the insert uh, in the editing of the programming of the negative mind is to edit out, I should, I have to, I must to, I want, I would like to, I enjoy doing, I would wish to be able to do, because those words evoke an entirely different feeling and sensation within our body.
0: Why? What what is it that they do? Why is the word should so powerful? And what do you know that it tends to, the the impact that it tends to have on a person?
1: Well, the number one thing that we know from research in cognitive behavioral psychology is when people uh, mentally self-repeat to themselves, I should, I have to, I must, is that it it evokes unwholesome negative programming. And negative programming in the thought of the mind leads to negative sensations, which lead to negative feelings and emotions in our body. And so that we now know from the field of mind body psychology and trauma healing therapy, that the mind affects the body, the body affects the mind, and the mind can also affect the brain. And so, what we always want to do is use what I call, and I write a book in my book called Creativity, is we want to edit and splice out the I should and give it a, what I call the turnaround and it of remedy which is the opposite of I should, is how do you feel? And I say this to my patients or coaching clients, how do you feel when you say, I want to, or I'd like to, or I need to, or I desire to? And Instantaneously, their faces change, their mood lights lights up, and they begin to experience more spaciousness and uh, more of a sense of relaxation in their being. And then you can take that, those qualities of spaciousness and relaxation into everything that you're doing all day long. And we call that meditation or mindfulness in action. Now, for example, when I'm working with patients all day long, I can't be sitting with my eyes closed and and, and meditating to generate that sense of well-being and peacefulness. But I can apply that by being mindful of how I'm breathing and moving from watching my own thoughts of I should to I want or I'd like to.
0: It is amazing to me that such a subtle shift in a word can have that big of a physical impact on a person.
1: Yes, because um, the the negative programming, let's just call it 1.0 in the software of your mind. Most of all of it comes from early childhood. And it creates what we call mind injury or mind interruption. As children, if you leave children alone in certain uh, school settings where they're given structured curriculum and then a non-structured curriculum. And for example, I read about this in the book called Creativity, that when I was in junior high, in high school, we had a music teacher in Boston. her music room was filled with every instrument that you could imagine. And when you entered the class, she gave you permission every single week to go to and play and fiddle around with each instrument. And then when you got bored or you felt restless with it, to go on to something else that captivated your curiosity. So should is negative programming. And what the key is, is to shift out of negative programming and then to go to 2.0 in the software of of our mind, which we do through mindfulness uh, practice, is to start embedding wholesome, positive ways of thinking, feeling, um, experiencing, and behaving, because thought leads to action. Thought creates behavior. And so it's important to shift from unwholesome, negative thought to more wholesome, positive thought. And the more positive thoughts that we have, it means that we're turning on our left prefrontal cortex in quieting down the right prefrontal cortex, which is negative thinking. I I don't like myself. I hate myself. I'm critical. I should do. All that's right prefrontal
0: cortex. Some people, I would imagine, are pretty cynical and say, there's no way saying certain words could have that big of an impact on your life. But the reality is that the science backs this up.
1: Yes. In the last, when I was a young um, scientist studying meditation in the early 70s, and we had just very primitive tools like biofeedback machines and the uh, EKG and the EMG, but we didn't have the PET scans and the CAT scans. Um, to really study how words and how feelings and images uh, turned on and turned off various parts of the brain. But in the last 15 uh, years, particularly in the area of neuroscience and brain, mind, uh, body uh, research, we have the instrumentation of a CAT scan and a PET scan, where we can ask you to invoke a negative image and we can actually show you on the screen what aspects of your brain light up. And then we say, okay, now I want you to go into a compassion state or a state of gratitude. And it's just extraordinary, Deirdre, that the parts of the brain, the whole left prefrontal cortex lights up and the right prefrontal cortex quiets down. So science has come a long way and most of the neuroscientists are extremely fascinated and interested Uh, I recently was having a long discussion at the Mauna Kea on the big island in Hawaii with one of the top uh, neuroscientists in the world. And he said, I can't believe that my wife and I have sat down uh, with you and your girlfriend of all the people in this resort. I am so fascinated that mindfulness is something that we quantum scientists are really interested in studying. And then we talked for two hours.
0: (laughs) That sounds like a delightful night.
1: It was because um, he, he w- was the least likely person of all the people that I looked around. Usually, I'd be looking for like the musicians and whatever. But we had this fascinating conversation because he was sincerely interested in how does meditation work. Why does it quiet down the right prefrontal cortex, and why does it light up the left and make people feel? Happier, more wholesome, um, and more resilient. And
0: and sometimes, Doctor Ron, it, it happens. It's only a couple of minutes of you know work to get there. Yes, to to instantly give yourself that feeling of just a little bit of peace or space, so that you can either think again you can get your work done, you can go back to trying to be a good parent or trying to be a decent human being to the people around you. <laughs> giving yourself that little gift of relieving the stress and giving your brain a break is so powerful.
1: And that's, Deirdre, that's very well put. Giving your brain a break, and one of the things that I suggest as a practical tool that everybody listening can do, that doesn't take 20 minutes, because Let's be honest, executives, people like yourself, um, mothers, getting kids breakfast and off to school and picking them up at, at activities. There's so much that we should do that we have to do in taking a brain break. And I think I'm going to use that from, from now on. You can on.
0: have it, Dr. Ron. Thank <laughs> you.
1: I, I like it. I, like it. Is I also say take a mindful pause. Mm -hmm. and see that doesn't take 20 minutes you can take a mindful pause and I always suggest take your left two fingers and put them on your pulse of your right hand throughout the day and take three to five deep breaths just to tune into is uh, your heart beating uh, really fast which means that you're under stress or you're feeling a little anxious and then to close one's eyes and to take five to seven breaths into the nose out through the mouth which will begin to turn down the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight, flight, or freeze. And it turns on very quickly, within 30 to 90 seconds, it turns on the parasympathetic nervous system, which is about resting, relaxation, and healing.
0: Dr. Ron, walk us through how to eliminate the words, I should or I have to. Give us a challenge as we start to wrap up of how we can do this one simple change to hopefully unlock a better creativity state but also just to feel better in general.
1: Yes. The most important thing that you can do is just simply identify it. And I call it the mind cartoon lasso. Once you see the thought, once you notice that oh, I am in should right now, create an imaginary like lasso where you see that little uh, bubble of balloon uh, in a cartoon and identify what the should is and then create another little bubble in a balloon over here and put in its positive antidote. The opposite of I should is I want to. The opposite of I have to is I would like to. The opposite of I must do is what would nurture me. So that's what I call um, mind-editing splicing, so that you want to feel empowered that you can transform negative thinking, negative programming, which we all have, we all struggle with uh, those types of thoughts all day long, to positive ones, because the mind can do anything. And there's an old saying in uh, meditation science that says, set your mind on what you want and Direct it, and then it will manifest.
0: I started, once we had confirmed this interview, I started trying to be a little bit more aware of how often I said I have to, I should. Mm -hmm. I was shocked how often I say this. And I say that as somebody who practices mindfulness every day, even for small periods, I was shocked how much I said it.
1: Yeah, it's phenomenal. And of course, before I got into um the discovery of Zen Buddhism and mindfulness meditation. I grew up as a nice Irish Catholic boy from Boston, going to a private Catholic uh, school. And the nuns and the priests, should was every other word.
0: (laughs) And have to was the other one. I I had a very similar background.
1: (laughs) And It takes years to clean up that programming like in regular therapy. But if you apply mindfulness meditation, like you said, you can just very quickly, you start making a note. For a while, I carried around a little notebook. And every time I was in it to what I should, or I must, or I have to, I wrote it down. And then I started to write down its opposite. And then I started to realize I could shift and shuttle out of the negative and into the positive uh, more quickly. And then lastly, it's very important uh, for all the listeners that no matter how harsh the negative criticism, or the self-hatred, or the low self-esteem is, is practice for one to three minutes a day. And it's usually good to do in the morning and then at night, gratitude meditation. And that's just simply sitting and feeling appreciation and gratitude for all of the good things that happened today. Because that sets the mind on an entirely different uh, frequency. And in my body, when I practice gratitude meditation, I start to feel really, really good, and it generates <clears throat> experiences of happiness and the qualities of well-being.
0: A clear mind is hard work at times, isn't it?
1: Very hard work. It's very hard work. But the important uh, thing to get is don't try to not have a clear mind. And don't try to have not have negative thinking just notice the negative thoughts and then drop them or almost as if you could swish them over your shoulders into the background and then find that positive way of thinking that positive emotion that you want to cultivate the counters let's say you get up and you feel sad well we we all feel sad sometimes the opposite though of sadness is appreciation joy
0: Dr. Ron, I could talk to you all day, but I'm afraid you're going to have to charge me a copay at some point. (laughs) I'll
1: give you a reduced rate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And again, your new book is out. It's Core Creativity, The Mindful Way to Unlock Your Creative Self. It's very interesting. And I I love your simple challenge, something we could all do today that maybe can have a big dividend very quickly. Best of luck with the book. Oh, thank you so much. Little background about this episode. I actually recorded it between newscasts. So I anchored a 7 a.m. newscast, walked out of the studio at 8, had to go run into our green room and set up podcast gear and interview Dr. Ron kind of on the fly. I- hate doing interviews like that. But it was just the only way to make it work that day because we were short staffed. So I wrapped up his 30 minute interview and then literally ten minutes later had to go run back into the studio, which is normally kind of a recipe for disaster because you feel a little flustered. I was so zenned out after talking to him for half an hour. It was one of my best newscasts of the week, seriously. So maybe therapy between shows <laughs> is the way to go in news. I don't know. But I did enjoy it and uh, made for an action-packed day for sure. You can keep up with Dr. Ron. He's got a website. Uh, it's dr... No, it's ronaldalexander.com. You can find him on Twitter, at ronalexanderphd, on Facebook, at ronaldalexanderphd, and then on Instagram, it's at dr ron alexander and then again the book is called core creativity the mindful way to unlock your creative self i think you'll really enjoy it what i'm listening to this week uh on with kara swisher this is a good show and i listened to an episode that honestly i would not have clicked on except that i was running and it automatically just populated it was episode that was published on january 19th and it was called inside the prince harry book blitz and what it means for the monarchy I'm kind of over Prince Harry, I'll be honest. I just, I feel like it's everywhere. However, the guests on this particular episode were Patrick Harvison and Catherine Mayer. Now Harvison worked as King Charles's communications chief, and then Mayer wrote a book about the king. So hearing about Harry's book through people who not only know him, but know how things actually work behind the scenes, was kind of interesting very fascinating and it turned into a bigger discussion kind of a personal discussion about grief and so I actually found it to be a really interesting episode I think you might enjoy it so again it's Kara Swisher the episode was first published on January the 19th now Kara Swisher regularly a number one podcast me not so much but I could get a little closer with your help you should (laughs) just kidding no you shouldn't do anything remove the word You have an opportunity, if you would like to, to take a second and share this show that we just did. If you are listening to us on Apple right now, if you look in the top right-hand corner of your phone, you'll see three dots. Hit those dots, and it'll pull up some options for you to share the show. So you can literally text it to someone in just seconds. Text it to somebody who needs to drop the word should. Honestly. Honestly. Think of how you can change their life today. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or review, the preference is, of course, five stars. Only takes a few seconds, but has major dividends on the backside to help us grow this show. Thank you for listening this week, and we'll see you next time on Dying to Ask.